Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Over the past two years, especially, many people in the U.S. have committed to being actively anti-racist. And there are a number of prominent books about the problems with racism in our society. And I say we're all the better for this cultural direction. Still, it's difficult from within to sort out the practicalities of real-life actions and attitudes about race. And today's Spirit in Action guest, Wendy Sanford, helps us all along the path with her just-released book, These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. Wendy first met Mary Norman when Wendy was hired as a domestic worker for Wendy's family during a summer vacation in the mid-1950s, and they've had a journey to true friendship over the decades, much of it requiring Wendy to self-examine and then re-examine herself, seeing more and more clearly the walls of white supremacy, white privilege, microaggressions, and much more between them. During those decades, Wendy grew from the restrictive walls of an upper-middle-class family into her 40 years working with the foundational feminist book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, embracing a Quaker identity, coming out as lesbian, and continuous growth in activism and transformation. Wendy Sanford joins us via Zoom from over in Massachusetts. Wendy, I am so absolutely delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks, Mark. You're somewhere close to Boston. You're in Boston? We're in Cambridge. So we, we go to a friend's meeting at Cambridge for years and years and years. An old meeting house that was built maybe 100 years ago or more. Well, I want to talk to you a bit about that because I think it plays probably some significant role in the unveiling of your eyes, getting down to truth about your own attitudes towards your friendship, your sistership to some degree Mm -hmm, with Mary Norman. mm -hmm. But first of all, I wanted to ask you about your connection with Our Bodies, Ourselves, because that also has got to be fundamental in your changes. I think at the point where you learn to see things different from your family, that what I've read in these walls between us, that seeing things with other eyes became very important. Tell me the history of how you got involved with Our Bodies, Ourselves. I'd love to. You know, the question is how far back to go. So I was married in 1964. And in 1969, we had our first child. And I had a postpartum depression, which back then, we didn't really know what it was, or it just my husband just was disappointed in me that I wasn't happier having a baby. And I lay around a lot and felt bad. We both loved the baby, but it was it was a difficult period. And He had a friend in architecture school whose wife called me out of the blue and said, I'm going to this group of women who are talking about women in their bodies, and I want to take you with me. I don't know if you've ever had depression, but the last thing you are likely to do is go out and do something that would be good for you. (laughs) So I didn't go. And then the next time she came by and picked me up the next week, because it was a several week session, she took me into this room full of people who are actually talking about sexuality and some words I had never heard said out loud before. And I won't go into all that because I've written about that in the book. And we broke down into small groups, which I had, it was a pedagogy I didn't know yet, 
We also talked about socialization, which was a term I'd never thought of before. So it's a lot of new, great stuff. And so I, I went into this room and I looked around the room. We sat in circle and I looked around. They were pretty much all mothers of young children. And I wondered if they were happy because I was so down and so unhappy. And so we talked about sex for a while. And then someone started talking about postpartum depression. By the end of the session, I began to understand that what was happening inside me wasn't my fault, that it was actually a combination of hormonal stuff and societal stuff, that I was alone in a house as a upper middle class housewife all by myself in a house with you know my husband going off to work, et cetera. And that was so transforming for me to understand that it wasn't my fault, that I actually poured my energy for the next decades and decades into our bodies or what became our bodies ourselves it at the time you know started out with a different name but what the woman who was talking about postpartum depression in the group said was that she wanted to do research into it so other women didn't have to experience what she did and that was one of those profound feminist ahas I ended up being very active in the group. And actually, because I'd majored in English and was a writer and a reader, I ended up being one of the primary editors, in-house editors for many, many editions of the book. I also wrote the sexuality chapter, and I initiated a body image chapter with several women from a women's and disability group. We could talk for an hour about that experience, but that was my initiation into our bodies ourselves. And were there women of other races in the seven, amongst the 17 co-founders of this? I just looked at the names of them online and one appeared to be, I would say, Japanese, but she didn't have a bio connected with her name. Was there anyone who was black or Hispanic? That's a very good question. So we were all white women. Back at the beginning, there were 11 of us. We've now added two different sections of three at a time, women who are now part of the founder group, but they came later and helped found other parts of what the organization has done. But the, the 11 original writers, we were all white and there was a, it was a time, it was very exciting time in feminism. And we, for a short while, thought we could say we women and mean all women. That, of course, wasn't true. But we really felt it for a while and different ones of us in the group began to be more aware that we couldn't do that, that women were so varied and that race and class made huge differences and in this country between women. And we couldn't say we women this and we women that. Uh, it just was very partial what we could see and what we knew. We developed relationships with, for instance, the National Black Women's Health Project and other groups. The Combahee River Collective uh, was a group of brilliant lesbians in the Boston area who really critiqued white feminism from the early, early on. So that was an invitation to me really to see how little I knew, how little of the world I knew and how little of U.S. society I knew and the impact of racism and economic oppression on other groups of people and to really begin a lifelong effort to learn more. And again, this depression you were going through was in 1969. Where did things go from there? So your first child's born in 69. How long were you married? I was married for five more years. You know, many, many of the women in our bodies ourselves had marriages that lasted till now. 
or were ended by death of a partner. Other marriages foundered on various things, and mine really foundered on the important things we couldn't talk about with each other. It wasn't feminism, but it looked like it was feminism. You know, it looked like feminism ended my women's group, ended my marriage, and I know my parents thought that. But in fact, becoming a feminist helped a lot of marriages, but also revealed fault lines in others. And I, I think that's what happened in mine. We were a consciousness raising and work group together because we had this project that we were doing, but we were talking about our lives. And I think some of the husbands felt like we just went and complained about them in the group when in fact we were even talking about them. But yes. One of the ways you had to clean up your act was in your relationship to people of color, to black and particularly to a woman who you identified, I think, as your friend very early on, although it wasn't a true friendship, as you lay out in the book, These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. I'm wondering, before we start talking about the book, could you give us a little example of what you've written in this book? Let's hear your words as you share them. And again, folks, we are speaking with Wendy Sanford today for Spirit in Action. So about a third of the way through the book, when Mary and I have known each other for possibly 25 years, she is still making it possible in her work schedule in corrections to help my parents on their summer vacation. And it gives her money for extras. And she just does that, even though being in Nantucket on the remote beach where my parents were vacationing was supremely lonely and isolating for her. She and I we're both divorced at this point. We're both single parents. She's working in corrections. I'm working with our bodies ourselves. And I think working with our bodies ourselves helped me understand both how little I knew about her life and also that we did have things in common as women. So both were true. So one night we just ended up going out for a walk on the beach and the beach was a place where in the daytime she could only really be if she was serving the white people that she was working for. It was a very elite, white-dominated place. But we just walked out the door in the evening to go for a walk. Linking arms in the darkness, we threaded our way across the sand, through the sharp dune grass over crackly piles of dried seaweed. You okay, I asked, once or twice. I could just see Mary's nod. Where the open beach flattened out before beginning to slant towards the water, we let go and stood for a moment, looking up at stars that wheeled far above our heads. Sit or walk, I asked. Let's walk, she said. Under cover of darkness, we began a walk that daytime would not permit, a black domestic worker strolling in a relaxed manner on the secluded whites-only beach. Mary pulled a Salem from her pocket and turned her back to the breeze to light it. On a smoky exhalation, she began to speak about her fellow corrections officers. These men never had a woman superior to them in rank before, so they liked to make things difficult. Recently, her fellow officers had forgotten to tell her about a certain set of keys that the night supervisor was supposed to carry, keys that would have made her job easier and safer. And they do not like having a woman in their locker room, she added. Just that week, guards had plastered photos of naked women on the walls of the locker room they had been ordered to share with Mary. Girly photos, she said, ones no decent woman should have to set eyes on. 
I thought of the manuscript I was editing for the Alliance Against Sexual Coercion. Mary seemed to be encountering classic workplace harassment. By refusing to advise or assist Mary in her work as a night supervisor, her fellow guards were undermining her success on the job. By withholding information about the night supervisor's keys, they were putting her in danger. Although the men did not threaten Mary directly with sexual violence, lewd pictures in the locker room were a menacing message of disrespect. All their tactics seemed aimed at unsettling and unnerving Mary. I thought she'd start to cry any minute. Mary took an emphatic tug on her cigarette. I fixed them, she said, not crying at all. You know that magazine that started having centerfolds of naked men? I cut out a big naked he-man and taped him up inside my locker door. Then I opened my locker and exclaimed, now there's my idea of a real man. She snorted into the night. They stopped that funny business, I'll tell you. What, are you thinking I'm awful about that centerfold? The guards are the awful ones, I said. Suddenly, I was on a mission to tell Mary everything I'd learned from my new editing job. The guards were harassing her, I said, and poisoning her work environment. They were illegally affecting her working conditions. The warden should protect her. Mary could take the county to court under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Occupational Health and Safety Act of 1970. Mary walked steadily ahead during my outburst. This is all in a book I've been editing, I said finally. Do you want to see the manuscript? Mary didn't jump at my offer. Sure, if you like, she said. You don't want to see it, I asked. I'm sure the book will be helpful, she said. It's just that I've handled them already. But your body is like a fortress. Your back is all seized up. I said this almost accusingly, as if Mary's tense and defended back were somehow her doing. I was concerned for her well-being, yes, but today when I listen again, like a fortress, all seized up, there's a note of complaint or even accusation in what I said to Mary, as though I resented the discomfort of worrying about her. Subtle, perhaps, but I see it as no coincidence that shortly afterwards, Mary turned around to head back. Thank you so much, Wendy. So in addition to the portion of Mary's character, she's not putting up with this and she's got strong, but she's not doing it by swearing it or thrashing about. She knows how to go for what she wants. I love that part that's shown through there. But I also think it's especially a gift to all of us readers that you're looking at your self-examination. Clearly, you want to be helpful to her. Uh, one of the things I've learned, by the way, my by my 30 plus years in men's group is I don't give advice. That's not what we're about here. Uh, if a man asks for advice, I give advice, but mostly we're here to listen and we can give our own reactions, but that's not advice. Oh, I have given Mary so much advice over the years. It's <laughs> painful to think about. We t- We laugh about it now. Yeah. But so I really appreciate in that passage, you're talking about you're wanting to help her, you're giving it advice unsolicited. And yet you can look back on that and see how important it is. I think some people may not understand. You say, you know, it's already 25 years or something into your connection with Mary that this happened. So again, this started when she was hired. She's 16 or almost 16. She's 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm 12. 
yeah, and you're 12, to be a domestic worker for your family during vacation. Mm -hmm. And it's unthinkable. What, you're going to hire a 15-year-old to go out and be this distance from the family? All the more the one black girl who's on the beach kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe there were other domestic workers around there. I don't know. Certainly the only people of color you saw in that fancy resort island were in service of some kind back then in the 19. It was 1956. No, well, 1956 was when Mary first arrived for that month with my family. And then she came back many, many other summers. And we were each the person in the household that we were each most comfortable with, but we didn't really start to talk until that summer, really talk till that summer when we were both divorced, both single parents, and both launched into our work. And that was a good 25 years later. And given just the few years of difference between you, she's still, she's a beautiful young woman already at 15, and you're a 12-year-old. When do you think that you thought she was your friend, and when do you think she thought you were friends? Well, that's, you know, I have to take that little by little. So we had been talking more openly with each other for five or six years. I mean, we only saw each other. I only saw her when she was working for my parents in the summer because she lived in New Jersey. She had a whole other job. And so my week of vacation, we both really look forward to spending time together. So after that had been happening and I had visited her a couple of times, and I don't think she had visited me yet in Cambridge, but we were walking on the beach one night and she said, we should write a book about our friendship. And she said, it'll make us a lot of money, which turns out, of course, won't be true at all. And then she said, maybe it'll even get us on Oprah. <laughs> Because Oprah had just started her, her show <laughs> that year. And we had been reading a lot of books in common. When I came, I'd always bring books that I'd been reading and loving. By There was just a flowering of literature by African-American women, particularly novels at that time. And so we shared a lot of those. And I'd been writing a book you know, with a group of women. So it just seemed somehow in the air that we could write a book together. And so that was more than 30 years ago that she made that suggestion. And it means that she considered us friends. But you know, the word friend changes every year within the friendship, what level of friends you are. It's just been really interesting to look back and think, was I really a good friend? You know, there are things I would say to her on some of those walks that were really insensitive. And there's a couple of examples in the book of that. And I thought of her as my friend but I still, she knew so much more about my life than I did because she was in those times that she was working for my family. That was part of her job was to know the children in the family. I had been trained not to notice Black people, not to differentiate, not to really pay attention. So it took years. It's just lucky we've lived this long, basically, that each year there's a little more that we felt safe to say to each other. So what part did she play in the writing of this book? I mean, there, there's the history of the book you didn't write together, but what part did she play in this book? That's a really good question because I started, you know, first tried taping her, telling stories, but I would ask the question. So my very linear mind just wanted her to start at this beginning and go through. So she told me about a pretty painful childhood when what she really wanted to talk about was how she was really the unofficial warden of that correction center and complain about the warden who just the warden from hell who arrived and was so focused on the new concept of punishment rather than rehabilitation. 
the new old concept. But I didn't ask her those questions on that first tape. So we never taped again. It was not a success. And then she was going to tape herself. And of course, she worked three jobs to be able to own her own house, et cetera, et cetera. So she didn't have time. So then we'd have long phone calls and I'd write down everything she said. So all of this is, you know, comes through me. Then email started and I would save all her emails, but it's still, it was the words were mine. Anything she said was coming through my hearing, but she was a fabulous informant. I mean, she would answer any question I had. Then finally, texting became available. Texting is the closest we've come to Mary being able to put her own experience in her own words and send it to me. And she has said, ask me anything. So I've asked a lot of stuff. And so the newer versions of the book, there have been so many versions of this book. The newer versions contain many more of her own words and her own takes on things. And that's been really important to me because I'm writing along, trying to create this book that we both thought was a good idea. And it turns out that it's a lot somehow about my family because that's what we shared. I mean, my parents' alcoholism affected her as it in, in different ways, but it very much affected her job and her emotions. So I'm writing along, and I haven't stopped to think that a white person writing the story for herself and a Black woman is part of a white supremacy culture, because I didn't have those words yet. So each time I understood a little more about white privilege and then white supremacy. And each time I read more and listened more and then listened to Black Lives Matter, etc., I understood that the book wasn't done yet. It was still too much my story. And then finally, we got so old. I'm 77. She's 81. <laughs> We'd had to just say, you know what? We've done the best we can. This is what it has to be. And it is my story of all the ways I learned I didn't know about her and the different ways I started to learn a lot by reading. And so I talk a lot in the book about the books I've read and the writers who's really opened for me more understanding of the life experiences Mary was talking about and had had. And so I think she began to feel I was paying attention in a different way. So then she'd say more. So it grew, but finally it had, you know, if at the next stage, if we were each 10 years younger, we might ask an oral historian to meet with her, preferably an African-American woman, meet with her and get more of her story told, not just to me, but that's another book. That's another generation. This is what it is. So she's been very involved and she read several different drafts, many different drafts. And the book made us both cry. Me writing it, I wept a lot. And she reading it, partly because it revealed some things my parents had said in their unconscious racism that she hadn't known about that were very, very painful for her to hear. At moments, I thought, this is really being so painful to Mary. Do I have any right to do this? And at one point, she said to me, you know, I think we really do have to tell the truth about this. And so we did. And the result was the book, These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class by Wendy Sanford, who's with us here today for Spirit in Action. The other person not named officially in that title is Mary Norman, who the two of you have shared this path together for, what is it now, since the mid-50s, so that's 60, 70 years you're closing in on. It's kind of amazing. 
And folks, what you just heard from Wendy is what I think is so important. Although the names white supremacy, white fragility, they hadn't even been coined at the time a lot of this was going on. Well, among white people anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think white fragility was a... No, but a, white a, supremacy a, was well known yeah, in of the course. black community. <laughs> well, there's KKK and everything. So, But the interesting thing about this is this isn't looking at someone, part of the Jim Crow South, although that was going on, mm-hmm. of course, at the start of this in the 50s when Mary first came to care for your family in the northern reaches, <laughs> far from home. So there's a whole lot of learning. Your parents were not outwardly using the N-word, but part of what I find really valuable in this book for me is to look at the unexamined norms and assumptions that are part of our lives that are part of the racism, which I think really since a year and a half ago, George Floyd I think so many people are asking themselves questions, and this book, for me, is a a great source of self-examination that we could each follow in. You wrote the book. Why did you want to get it out? Again, this is 40 years in the making between you and Mary. Yeah. What do you think the purpose is now? Well, I have two answers to that question. And the first is, this book has been a leading for me in the Quaker sense that you, you feel spirit is nudging you to do something, and you kind of get up the courage to follow that leading. So sometimes when you have a leading, you don't know why you're doing it. You don't have your whys figured out yet. They will be revealed to you. So when I started out, I was just fascinated by the relationships in my family, by Mary's relationship to my parents, which was, uh, there was love there. It's just as Toni Morrison says, love is never any better than the lover. And if you love someone, but you're just totally distorted by some of those assumptions and the racism that you just mentioned, then what's the quality of the love? So I was fascinated by that. I wanted to try to explore it. And then as time went on in this country and the more and more revelations about white dominance and the terrible evils of it, I began to hone towards really Mary's and my friendship. But the initial feeling was a fascination with the dynamics in my family, feeling I was meant to somehow record them and offer them for what use they might be. And many times I would say, okay, can I just, it's, can I be done with this leading? I've really tried. It's like been 20 years. It's just really, it's not working. And I never got a message from spirit that it was okay to let it go. Never. (laughs) And I had a support committee, the way Quakers, you know, you're supposed to do when you have a leading. And they helped me tremendously. And we pray together about it. And they've seen me through these many changes in the book that I, I think it's finally as close to what it's meant to be in this lifetime. Folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. And one of the reasons you want to go to our website is because then you can find a link to Wendy Sanford's website. Her website that I would point you to is wendysanford-thesewallsbetweenus.com. 
And because you may not retain that, come by northernspiritradio.org and you'll surely find your way to it. Actually, you, if you search for Wendy Sanford, there's other Wendy Sanfords out there in the world, but none as aptly pointed as this one, following this leading to write this book, These Walls Between Us. So you'll find that link on northernspiritradio.org and links to all of our guests of the last 16 years. And you'll find a whole bunch of information, including the radio stations across the country, the community radio stations that carry these programs. Please support them. Alternative sources of information are so important. Wendy was part of the formation of what became our bodies, ourselves, uh, so important in the lives of so many women, and I think bore fruit for our entire society because of that. Alternative news and information sources are so important, so please support those community radio stations. Also on our site, we look for comments and feedback from you. Please help us out. Two-way communications is the best kind, and there's a place where you can donate to support Northern Spirit Radio, so please consider doing that. But first, support those local community radio stations and your local media. They're really important, so start there. Again, Wendy Sanford is here. She's in Boston area, Cambridge specifically, and she is joining us to talk about her book, which is just released. I saw, by the way, October 5th at 7 p.m., Porter Square Books. You and Brian Corr of Cambridge Peace Commission are going to be talking about the book. I found it interesting that Brian was there, and it's Cambridge Peace Commission. I also saw that on November 1st, the 9th Annual Peace and Justice Awards given by the Peace Commission. There's a lot of awardees, and amongst them are you and your wife, Polly Atwood, are being honored for your individual contributions and partnership in promoting racial justice and peacemaking leadership both within the Friends Meeting, Cambridge Friends Meeting, and the larger community. That's coming up. I'm excited to hear about that. But so you're having this event talking about the book with Brian Corr. Why him? And why doesn't Mary come out? She's only 80. She's still got lots of years in her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't I wish. Don't I wish. First about Brian, he's a member of my meeting. We have been friends for so long. We've been on each other's support groups. We've just been drawn to ask each other for support and walking through life together at different points. I'm in a faithfulness group with him, and he has read the book. It was really important to me. There's nothing I say in this book that's going to be new to someone who grew up Black in this country, but it will be new to some white people who we haven't had our eyes open. And so it's mainly, I, I think of it as aimed at white people, uh, hopefully to be of use for white people. And it was very important that some African-American people whom I deeply respect read it and said, yes, this is, you know, this is going to be useful. And so he was one of those people and he's been a supporter of the book all along. And so, in fact, then to get to the part about why Mary isn't coming out, she has some Internet challenges in her community where she lives. I mean, she lives in Roanoke, but because of the pandemic, she can't get people to come hook her up properly. And hasn't been able to, and family hasn't been able to visit much. So she doesn't trust that she could be on for the actual event. Plus, she prefers questions if she knows what they are in advance. So she's going to come. She's going to be there, but it's crowdcast, so people won't be able to see her. And that's that's actually, I've asked her and asked her, and she said that's what she wants. 
So Brian and Mary and I had a Zoom call for an hour last week because I really wanted them to meet each other and talk before the launch. It was just a lovely meeting. They just got talking. And he's also part of his work in Cambridge just with civilian review of police activity. And so because she worked in corrections for so long, they had some things in common there to talk about. And he's my son's age and her son's age ages. So it just, it was a beautiful three-way conversation with a lot of heart in it. And a quick advertisement, if you will, what is Cambridge Peace Commission? Well, I don't know how many cities in this country have a peace commission, but you might expect it of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we've had one for many, many years and it's all volunteer, except that the city pays one person to be the director to really pull things together and serve the commission. He really serves the commission. And Brian has had that job for seven or eight years now. What does a peace commission do since we don't have one here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin? (laughs) They gather the community together to celebrate, for instance, Dr. Martin Luther King's day and to have a day of service. They gather the community together to celebrate a Holocaust Remembrance Day. They support bills both that come before the city around, for instance, surveillance, that whole thing that's going on in in some communities about how much surveillance is good for the safety and well-being of the community and how much more often communities of color get watched and studied and mistrusted. So that would be something else that the Peace Commission would focus on. I haven't actually been on the commission, so I'm sure there's several other things, but those are a few ideas. I am really interested in hearing more of the pieces. Of course, I've read the book, and so I have a good sense of a lot of this, but there's pieces that lead to your deeper involvement, your ability to remove the veil from your own eyes, to follow this leading, all of these things which are part of that. One of them is the work with the women of our bodies ourselves. Mm -hmm. I believe it was in 1972 you first attended a Quaker meeting, which happens to be the first year I attended a Quaker meeting, by the way, (laughs) even though I'm younger than you are. It's just, I was 18 and I had a friend who was part of a close circle of friends who I went and checked out Quakers then. So Quakers were part of that. And I note that Polly is also part of opening your eyes. There's passages in the book when people read these walls between us, where she mirrors back to you things that help you take your next step. And I note that this year, Polly Atwood is a co-clerk of Friends for Racial Justice for Cambridge meeting. Mm-hmm. So I figure that part of your steps forward was your women's work, was your Quaker connection, was your relationship with Polly, which came on a little bit later. Any other significant portions that got you to open up to see your relationship, and particularly through the mirror of what was happening between you and Mary Norman. I'll say something about Polly first. From early on in our relationship, we just became really committed to understanding what our whiteness meant and what it brought us and how racism worked and how it wasn't just about bias. It was so structured into this country and everything we had taken for granted in terms of education. It just, we began, it's a lifelong study for us. And I remember we we gathered some friends together and paid someone to teach us to run a workshop with us decades ago. We've been together 42 years and it was back towards the beginning. And so we have supported each other in this 
passionate interest and commitment over all this time. Mine went in the direction of writing this book, and she's been more activist in in other ways. But yes, she's seeking to serve the meeting and the yearly meeting around um, something that they're calling noticing patterns of faithfulness and oppression. So how do we notice the patterns that we as Quakers follow and sometimes think, well, this is just how Quakers are supposed to do it. And it really turns out as well, it's really how white people can stay comfortable. And what are the patterns of faithfulness also as our meetings in the Northeast are are not exclusively white, but quite predominantly white? And what can we do and how can we begin to understand and be more truly welcoming and inclusive? Because to really be inclusive means to be changed, be willing to be changed. And she's helping to lead us in this effort. So we're hugely respectful of each other's and supportive of each other's work in this area. So I'm glad you mentioned her work. One of the themes that goes throughout the book is you're talking about your family a lot because that was the meeting ground for you and Mary Norman. One of the themes that, again, I felt identity with you is the alcoholism in the family. Alcoholism in my family was a very big deal. My mom died when I was nine years old. She was drunk driving and my dad had an accident drunk driving the same night completely independently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a part of my history and it plays such a big role Mm -hmm. in your relationship. To some degree, what you paint in these walls between us is that Mary becomes very devoted, uh, almost a second daughter to your mother. She becomes a sister in that way, although she's not truly a daughter. She's <laughs> She's got to live in the other room. She doesn't sit in chairs around your parents. Right. She doesn't eat with us. Right. All of those things. Yeah. But, you know, we love her as a daughter, but a daughter who we keep locked in the back room or something. But the alcoholism, which I think you feel free to criticize a lot more than Mary can. At the time. I mean, she's got to be there to refill the drink for your father all the time and, and your mother, essentially having drinking, killing her too. Mm-hmm. It comes through very clearly in the book, the way that this is family for both of you, but a different kind of family. One of the things I do in the book is draw a lot on writings by African-Americans in particular. And there's a wonderful murder mystery series by a local Boston writer named Barbara Neely, who has since sadly passed away. The book I read is called Blanche on the Lamb. That's the first one. And Blanche is a domestic worker who she just doesn't, she's very smart and sassy. I mean, she she just has a real critique of white families who say, oh, so-and-so, you know, is like a member of our family. And yet when it's time to give gifts or to give bequests, it's just handkerchiefs and sachets. When what if they were really family, it should be stocks and bonds. And then there's another writer, Alice Childress, who wrote this amazing book in the 50s called Like One of the Family about a domestic worker whose white employer says to a friend, oh, she's just like one of the family. And this domestic worker just goes off on that, just goes off on that, has such a critique of that. You know, my mother saying, we love Mary and she loves us. She's like one of the family. But in fact, What are the measures of someone being part of the family? Usually it's eating at the dinner table. Usually it's people listening to you as well as they will listen to anyone else in the family because it's not always a family strength. Usually is if someone dies, some of that wealth is passed on if there is wealth. 
none of that is true. And, you know, my mother used to say, oh, Mary, you're such a good friend. But she didn't treat Mary the way she treated her other friends. So it's really, I just wanted to look into what do we mean by friend and what is a true friend and how to be a more dependable friend in this context. And again, because alcoholism is so important to me, it was important to you in terms of how you didn't trust your father. I don't know. It doesn't come through clearly that you exactly criticize your mother for putting up with BS from your father. Oh, well, I was a teenager. I could, I criticized them, you know, in my 20s and 30s, actually, my callow youth. I had a lot of criticisms of then. I, <laughs> and also fear. I mean, it was scary to live in that household because he did abuse her physically from time to time. And part of the difference between you and what Mary was going through is she's an employee. Exactly. So she can't criticize. She can't. And she was pretty good at being stoic at that point and, and holding her tongue when she clearly, as it comes out later in the book and in your relationship, if she were not a second class citizen in our society, she would have had choices. But she was lacking choices that we assume because we're white that mm -hmm. we have. Oh, I don't like this situation. I go to a different one. Huh? Yeah. She came to work that first summer, as you said, at 15 years old, going on 16. And my parents were kind to her in a way that many white people in the, in the town she grew up in and the area she grew up in were not. So their attitudes were racist and their kindness was palpable. So she became very devoted to them so that their alcoholism both really complicated her work. And my mother used to say, Mary, you're so great because you don't tell stories on us because silence is very, very, very much part of the job requirement for a domestic worker, a silence about the family. But then when my mother was dying of cirrhosis of the liver, my father and Mary both were in pretty healthy denial about it because they didn't want her to die. And they stayed in denial a really long time. And in fact, a couple of nights before mom died, Mary and I were in the kitchen talking. And this is a scene in the book. And I said, you know, at this point, all we can do is love her and pray for her and help her die comfortably or whatever I said. And Mary got furious at me for the first time really ever in our experience. She just, she just would not have it. We've looked back on it now. And she said, I didn't want to think she was dying. So there was such love there. And as I said, love is just distorted by some of the social oppressions that we carry inside us. One of the things that you said separates family from the domestic help, if you will, is the assumption of who will inherit something, the kind of gifts you get, yes. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think that Mary, in some way, got close to being part of the family in that her father actually left her the house that he had forced her to buy in Florida and <laughs> not take care of him, but he actually left it to her without giving her advanced knowledge that she was, and, and that your whole wrestling with how am I a friend, how am I faithful to her, how am I faithful to family, how do I protect her? You use it to examine both, you know, white supremacy, white fragility, a number of different aspects of racism. And the history of even redlining and what equity actually means to a family that owns a house. Yeah. 
Right. You use it to look at a whole number of issues around race. And I think I traveled with you the thorny, I'm damned if I do it, damned if I don't. Yeah. If I tell her and therefore dad withdraws this thing that he hasn't officially made as a statement to her, then have I screwed it up by disclosing this to her? My dad says I have to be quiet about this. Mm -hmm. I see the aspects of it, which are part of racism. Let's just admit, relationships are fraught with difficulties, no matter what race, no matter what family. Dealing with an alcoholic family makes it all the worse. There's so many difficulties. And so it's really sensitive work that you're doing to examine the racist threads that were, are within that. Mm-hmm. And also class threads in that there was a part of me that didn't want to risk inheriting what I was going to inherit. Not because I didn't want to share it with Mary. That wasn't it. I was just afraid if I offended my father, he might cut me out of his will. I was already a lesbian. I was already politically progressive, et cetera, et cetera. He never would have done that. So I had this whole, I didn't dare speak up and tell Mary the truth. When I really look at it, some of the inertia was around my own financial security. Probably not the whole thing because you're so right. I just really worried because he got drunk every night. So I didn't know if he would change his mind, not give her the house. One of the things that's so useful about this is you're looking at 70 years of connection between you and Mary, and the society has changed so much. As I said, terms like white fragility were not known, I think, maybe even 15 years ago. Yes, that's true. So, folks, as you read These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class by Wendy Sanford, as you read it, folks, you'll be able to see more clearly in your own lives possibilities of things that could use some reexamination and attitudes that we're carrying forward, which so much determine what this world is like in terms of race, why race is one of the biggest issues in our nation. Wendy certainly leads us in that direction. I found myself questioning as you wrote, Wendy, you said, oh, when I said this to Mary, that was a microaggression. It might have just been you being clueless. And I don't think you're a very clueless person in general. I think you're a very sensitive person. I have to say as a male, I've been socialized to be clueless and I can just fob it off on my maleness, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) But I saw some of the mistakes that you made in talking to Mary as mistakes that you probably also made with Polly and other people where it wasn't race and class that was separating you. How do you open yourself to be able to fine tune the difference between them? It's a really interesting question. Thank you. The way microaggressions work in my understanding is that I might say something, let's say to Mary, that I didn't intend to be insulting or problematic, but it's the kind of thing she hears several times a day. Something that minimizes her or really makes her invisible. I mean, there's different things that you say that can play into this. And so I both may not have intended it and it may have looked harmless to me. But in fact, if she's heard it several times a day, it's cumulative and is actually the source of tremendous stress for people of color in this country. So the one example where I first introduced the term in the book is Mary and I have been walking on the beach. It's one of our later walks a few years after we started. And I say to her at the end, my mother wants me to be really sure to see my friends while I'm here. 
that lands on me. It landed on me very quickly, actually. And I tried to backpedal because it's like my mother didn't consider Mary on the equivalent of my white friends. And in saying that to her, I was implying that that was true for me or revealing that that was true for me. And so, so it was minimizing her and our relationship. And I see that as a microaggression. I didn't intend it, but there it came out. And how often each day in the press, in the stores, in public, did Mary feel minimized? Like she wasn't considered as good as the white people around. And so I consider that a microaggression that I said something that piled on top of the many other experience she had of being minimized, and it was hurtful to her. And I heard it right away and tried to back off, but I had said it, and it was, it was out there. Another thing that gets said several times in the book, and it's part of your, the history, again, difference between race and class between you and Mary, is you tend to walk on eggshells. Mm-hmm. You're, because you're a compassionate person, you don't want to accidentally do a microaggression. You don't want to hurt her, and you don't, also don't want to look bad, right? You, mm-hmm. You're reaching out in the darkness, not knowing if I step here, will this get a negative reaction? Will I look bad here? So it was important that you learn to not walk on eggshells But I still hear that there's always a voice there that says, I better walk on eggshells very carefully here, even though you're committed to not doing that, because that's really important in terms of moving forward. That's a good distinction. Being aware of how something you say might land and being as aware as you can of the context within which you say it, I guess is a form of walking on eggshells. Ideally, you're not doing it because you don't want to do something wrong. You're not doing it because you don't want to hurt the person. So when Mary warned me not to walk on eggshells that first time, I was trying to ask her about being black and I couldn't even say the word out loud. It was just really hard. And I was part of a moment in history in which for a long time, the progressive thing to think and say was I'm colorblind with just because race had been used so hurtfully in the Jim Crow era to lynch people and kill people and restrict people that so then the people with a good heart and liberal mind thought, well, we just won't talk about race. That was a period. And then some more, more aware white people started and people of colors to say, well, if you pretend race doesn't matter, you're totally ignoring that my race has really mattered in my life because of the racism in this country. So then we started trying to be more race aware and talk about race more. But the first time I tried to use the word black with Mary after 25 years, 30 years of knowing each other, I was so awkward. And that's when she said, if you walk on eggshells, I won't be able to talk with you the way I talk to you the way I do. And it was a real eye-opener that there's something about walking on eggshells that's distancing, that holds the person away, and that you aren't really being real with the person. And then later in the book, just recently, texting, she said to me, well, I had to walk on eggshells with you too. So and that's what I mean. We, we're starting to tell each other more of the truth. Because, you know, I was always, Mary, you're working too hard. Mary, can't you cut out one of your jobs? You're a workaholic. You just work too hard. I didn't have a clue. The pressure's on her. 
and the lack of any financial stability whatsoever because her family didn't have money. And because of redlining, she did own her house, but she had to pay more money in the mortgage than the typical white family. I mean, I wasn't aware of any of that. So when I told her she should just drop one of her jobs, it gets back to the beginning of our conversation. I'm giving her advice that's totally ill-founded and that she was very patient to receive. And when we talked about it just recently, she said, I knew there was a lot you didn't know and you weren't aware of, and that she couldn't back then just say, look, Wendy, get a grip, because she also had to walk on eggshells around me. And that's partly that she started out working as a domestic worker for my mother. It's, It's all so complicated, and it's great to get to talk about some of it with you. And folks, you can read a lot more about it in These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class. And I I think it's really important to say that even though you're looking at these issues of race and class, this is not a lecture. This is your lived personal experience, your experience and Mary's experience. Mm -hmm. It really is more like accompanying people as they look at issues. A very important person, Wendy Sanford, as she's addressing these things in her life and her history and the history that's between her and Mary Norman. The incredible work at self-examination you did and the work you did with Mary Norman to get here to have a fruitful friendship that blesses the world through this book, These Walls Between Us, a memoir of friendship across race and class by Wendy Sanford. And folks, again, the link is on northernspiritradio.org. The website you want to go to is Wendy Sanford hyphen these walls between us.com. And maybe you're in the area and you can join her at on October 5th at Porter Square Books. It's virtual, actually. It's going to be virtual because of the Delta variant. You can join her no matter what. Yeah. From anywhere. <laughs> You'll find a link on that launch event for this book via, again, Wendy Sanford hyphen these walls between us dot com. And on November 1st, you could also celebrate her. She and Polly both received Peace and Justice Awards from the Cambridge Peace Commission. I'm so grateful that you opened your heart. You've done this walk with women examining yourself, with looking at your relationships. It's a fruitful model that if the world followed it, I can't help but believe we would have a much better country to live in and a world to live in. So thank you for doing that, for sharing those vulnerable moments through your book. Yeah, I felt that's really all I, that's what I had to give once, you know, we were saying at the beginning that when you have a leading, you don't quite know why. And I think the point was what I had to give was transparency and honesty and self-reflection about some things that are embarrassing to talk about. That's, I think, why I was chosen to do it. So thank you. I I really appreciate how thoroughly you read the book and thought about it. And you asked wonderful questions. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks. And folks, you'll find the links and more information connecting with Wendy and Mary via the website that I've just given you. Read the book, deepen your own self-examination, and join me again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice,